As I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures, let the Bible always have the final say. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get one to you and open them up, please, to the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 41. And while you're opening up to chapter 41, I just want to walk you through a few things here. Go ahead, Lauren, and pop that on, and I'll give you the cue. Um... I'll give you some sort of cue that let you know to, to flip through those. Genesis chapter 41. We are currently in a place called, well, yes, we're currently in a place called Egypt. It's really important to recognize sort of where we're at at the state of it. I want to give you a little bit of background before we even read and dig into our text. Um, first of all, Egypt, for what it's worth, is broken up into two major areas during this time. Um, by the way, one is going to be called the lower, ironically up here, the lower um, Egypt and then the upper Egypt. And by the way, something that's just happened in the last 100 years that really is going to make this even more profound. And that is that up to this point, they have been divided a lot like the kingdom of Israel and Judah will be divided after Solomon. But something happened, and you can go ahead and get in the next slide. Thank you. Um, is that their king, particular king at that time, um, that had just taken over, had moved everything to Thebes. And so becomes the beginning of what they call the Theban dynasty. And all that really means is, for the first time now in nearly a few hundred years, the um, entire kingdom from the lower Egypt, as you see here, to the upper Egypt, all of this has actually now been unified. It's in its heyday. That's the idea of it. It has become the most popular empire in the entire world, as anyone would know it at the time, which makes Pharaoh, in essence, the most important person, at least politically, during this time. Now, understand, that means that he's being sent to the superpower of the day. That's sort of the idea, but envied by others. Now, with that in mind, and go ahead and flip to the next one. Um, this is sort of the pictures that you would see of Pharaoh. And by the way, for what it's worth, Pharaoh has a different way that when he walks is when he sits. You know, some of you all have a different strut. Well, with this in mind, this is the sort of cane that he wears or that he walks with when he walks. And this thing, by the way, comes from the tail of a particular dog of Egypt. Uh, it's a god that's sort of symbolized by a dog. And that's sort of the idea of that. Um, this, of course, is an ankh. It's sort of a symbol of eternity. But this is the important thing I want to show you to begin with. If you look at this, that's actually two hats. Now, maybe you just think that's just a cool and funky hat. I would wear that. Looks kind of like a bowling pin, you know, surrounded by a giant ladle. Well, understand the idea of these two things is really important because this basically is supposed to be the idea of supporting the upper and the lower Egypt. And because, in other words, these were pharaohs prior to him to some degree. But this right here says that he was a king of both. He was a king of the United Empire, was the idea. So he wore something to symbolize, and these were both considered crowns, by the way, that he was a king of both Upper and Lower Egypt. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Thank you, Lauren. Now, this is basically the sort of this presentation while he would be sitting, when he was sort of in sort of the royal decorum. Now, it's important to note, by the way, that he sat in between two people. Now, when he sat here, usually there were two things in his hands. He had in one hand a crook, and he had in another hand a flail. And the idea of it was, was that he had the control over every human being to either make them go, and that was the flail, or a crook, which was to pull them back. And that was kind of the idea. We know it, of course, more as a rod and a staff, for instance, in Genesis 23, where it says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's important to recognize what David is saying. 
I mean, your rod is when God whaps you on the rear end and says, get going. And it's strange when you get that feeling. Sometimes that's restlessness. Sometimes God just dissolves everything around you and you just have to go where God calls you to. Whatever the case is, God says, that comforts me. David's going, ah, that comforts me. And what kind of strange thought that is? Except when we are reminded, of course, in the book of Revelation at the end of chapter 3, when God says, I chastise those I love. I mean, the reason you're getting it on the behind is because I love you. That's the whole idea of it. But also the idea of a staff where he sort of pulls you back. And there are those times, by the way, where in our running, God actually has to, you know, has to flail us or God has to crook us, so to speak. And that's sort of the idea of hooker by crook. Now, um, now understand uh, in that there's some of you, and we've talked about this before, that God would have to say go to, and others God would have to say no to. It all depends on your personality. So some are more familiar with the flail for God to get you going, and some are more familiar with the crook where God has to pull you back. And understand, that was the idea. Now, he sat with both of those things, and the idea of that was that he's supposed to have control over everything. But then on his two sides were two very important people to him. He had a sort of, in essence, his archbishop. Now, today, like for instance, we would say that the sort of the Archbishop of Canterbury sort of oversees the Church of England. And those days, that particular priest resided just outside of Thebes in a city called On. That might be important in just a moment, what you'll see. And, and the idea of it, he was at his left hand. A king, traditionally, and anywhere in the Middle East, and in Egypt as well, is that to your left hand was your counselor, to your right hand was your executor, the guy that got your job done. We still use the term to my right, my right hand man. It's the guy that gets the job done. We read, of course, when Jesus finished the work at the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the reason he sat down was because the the will of the Father had been fully executed. It was completed, and he sat down. That was the idea. So who is this guy to Pharaoh? That's the the, the captain of his guard. Because that's the guy that's responsible for protecting Pharaoh, and certainly he's the guy that has to get the job done. And to Pharaoh, the most important thing for him, well, one of the most important things, of course, is going to be making sure that he doesn't get killed. That's kind of a key aspect, wouldn't you think? Now, understand, with that in mind, and if I could just sort of play this out, to Pharaoh, the most, he was, so, and, I, and forgive me for sort of laying all this out, but when we get into the text, this whole thing just blows up in our face as a result of this. That Pharaoh was responsible for a thing called the Ka. And what that meant was, in essence, the cosmic universe had some form of order. The Greeks would, the Greeks, the Greeks, the Greeks, sorry, <laughs> would actually consider that a grasping in the darkness for this logic. And this logic, they thought, was basically the understanding of the universe. John seizes upon that when he writes to these people fighting the Gnostics in John chapter 1, when he talks about that which was from the beginning, and and, and the whole idea of this creation where where God actually light shone in the darkness. And the whole first John, the beginning of first John was that same idea. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That life was manifested. And the whole idea of it now, John in John chapter 1, John 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. And that word's like the logic. And the word was with God. And the word was, with, it was God. And the idea of that was that God had this thing. And it wasn't just growth being in the darkness to find it. That logic you're looking for, the order of the universe is a person. And that person is Jesus. Well, in those days, they thought that the guy responsible for it was this fella. He was responsible. So you can understand 430 years from now, when the whole thing starts falling apart through Moses, and you have all these plagues, people are going to look at Pharaoh and go, hey, um, there's hail falling from the sky. What's up, buddy? Because he's the one who's supposed to be responsible for all of that. So understand how key that's going to be in all of this. Go ahead and flip to the next slide. 
Um, traditionally, one of the big issues was subjugation. This was the issue of the Nubian conquest. In other words, they went farther south in Africa. This is supposed to be gold. And what you see are people basically bowing and giving homage to him, uh, to to Pharaoh and giving their gifts. Go ahead in the next slide. What you'll see are a couple things that identified the king. One of them, of course, is his signet ring. And by the way, this is actually one of the signet rings. This is Tutankhamun's signet ring. And then the other one, by the way, is his chain. This, by the way, if you go, and if you can do this for a second, if you would, flip back three slides, if you would, please. That's the one with all the guys. Keep going. Sorry. Back. That one. Notice, no matter what kind of headdress they wore, they all had the same necklace. Did you notice that? It was sort of, you know, pharaoh apparel. You really, you really couldn't show up at a pharaoh party and not have one of these. And so this, by the way, identified your leadership was the idea as well. And so this what they would call a chain. So this is a chain. You got the signet ring. Well, now you can flip forward to the one beyond that. Now, this you might find interesting if, you, if nothing else has been so far. Um, these, by the way, are coins. And up to this day, to be honest, until about 150 years ago, everything changed. This, by the way, is actually, I mean, well, these are obviously considerably older. These are actually over 3,000 years old, roughly 3,000 years old. But these are coins. And actually, people used to believe the Syrophoenicians invented coins. But what became evident, found in a box of antiques at the Museum of Egypt, were these coins. Now, any of you gifted at reading hieroglyphic? I didn't think so, a cuneiform. Well, if you would read this, do you know what this says, strangely enough? It says, Joseph. Which, by the way, we all can be aware of, is not an Egyptian name. And this happens to be the same time as Joseph. On the back, by the way, is a cow, for what it's worth. So there's a cow on one side and his name, Joseph. On the other side of it, by the way, his name in Egyptian as well. So I just thought you might find that interesting. Flip to the next one. How do we know that? Because these two dark slides that are impossible to read, these are copies of the um, Rosetta Stone. And that was one of the most greatest gifts we could find because on the Rosetta Stone were actually lists of three different, the same account, but written in three different languages. And it allowed us to translate, to discover not only ancient Hebrew, but it also allowed us to, to start to translate cuneiform as well. Praise God for that. Now, going to the next slide. Pray for that one will be a little bit easier to see. Awesome. Yeah, not really, huh? Well, if you could look at this, there's a bunch of writing on this. And can you, can you see the sort of little um, wall relief at the top there? Okay, well, there's a pyramid. Uh, down here, by the way, what you would see is an excavation. I can show you other pictures later of it. But listen to this. This, by the way, for what it's worth, was one of the storehouses that held grain. And this is what's written on that spot right there. It says this. We dwelt in the castle seven years of good life. How difficult for memory is its description. Then came years barren and burnt up. When one evil year had passed away, then another came to succeed it. And we became as though we had never seen a glimpse of good. Then an interesting thing to find. On a storehouse that held grain. Go to the next slide if you would. Hopefully you'll be able to see this one a little bit better. Okay, now this particular stone is a real beautiful find. Now, I'm not big on sort of finding this stuff and sort of playing on it, but I, I, I just couldn't help but show this. Now, in 1850, they were digging through some particular, um, some graves. And as they were digging through some graves near Cairo, they found this one. It was the grave of a very wealthy woman. And this particular woman, we'll actually find out later, her name is Tajah. 
And she was still uh, in her tomb were found and then looted, of course, gold and silver and pearl dust. How often do you find pearl dust? And then they found this inscription. And this is what the inscription says. In thy name, O God, O God of Hamyar, Aitajar, the daughter of Zushifar, sent my steward to Joseph, and he delaying to return me return to me, I sent my handmaid with a measure of silver to bring me back a measure of flour. And not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of gold. And not being able to procure it, I sent her with a measure of pearls. And not being able to procure it, I commanded them to be ground. Finding no profit in them, I am shut up here. Whoever may hear of it, let him commiserate me. And should any woman adorn herself with an ornament from my ornaments, may she die no other than my death. Well, doesn't that just make you feel warm and comfy inside? So this was a tomb discovered in 1850 of a Yemenite woman who died during the Egyptian famine we'll find here in Genesis 41. For what it's worth, here's the thing. Understand, God knows every little goodie buried all over the face of the earth. And so, I mean, it was, it was only until, the, to be honest, the, um, it was about fifth to 1950s, I believe, when they actually discovered that stone when they were redoing the, the, uh, the theater in Caesarea. Where they, until then, they just said, well, there's no Pontius Pilate. We have no record of a Pontius Pilate. And then they flipped over a stone that was used as a seat in the theater and on the, talked about the dedication of the theater to Pontius Pilate. And at that point, they just went, oh, well, then there's no, there's no someone else. You know, that's where that's going to go. Now, now, if all of this meant nothing, and that's totally okay, I just want to sort of prepare you for this text. We're now in Genesis 41. And in Genesis 41, Joseph has now spent at least two years in prison. And it's important to recognize that. Now, please understand, Joseph was taken in his 17th year. That we know actually earlier from the book of Genesis. And as he was taken in his 17th year, he is now 30 years old. And we'll read that in this text. Now, if that would be the case, now do this, in, do this math in your head for a second. If he was taken in his 17th year, and he was then at the, somewhere in his 30th year, what's the greatest amount of years that Joseph has been gone from his house? Roughly 14 years, because that includes the year he was. What if, and those, I mean, the two things we know have happened in those 14 years. In those 14 years, Joseph has been taken as a slave and then made, in essence, second in command at the house of Potiphar, who, by the way, what was the position of Potiphar, friends? What did he do? What was he called? Captain of the guard, excellent. He was captain of the guard. So in essence, he was the guy that was at Pharaoh's right hand. Are you with me on that? And he was there for whatever period of time that we don't know how long, but he was there for some period of time until Pharaoh's, I'm sorry, until Potiphar's wife makes the moves on Joseph and Joseph flees. At which point, of course, she grabs his cloak and then cries, cries rape. Joseph gets nailed for it and gets sent down into the prison, which, by the way, happens to be where? Where was the prison? In Potiphar's house, under Potiphar's house. So you're not going far, which means you get to hear that dainty little creature up above you talking while all that's happening. Now, well, all of that, so there you are, and there he gets favor, and now he's, now think about it, that means however long he was at Potiphar's house and elevated, he knows how to deal with much. 
Potiphar was a very wealthy man. He had a great deal of servants. Potiphar, so, so Joseph knew how to deal with, with great things. He knew how to deal with much. Now thrown in the prison, Joseph has to learn how to deal with little, as now he is responsible for serving all of, this, all of the people. And he gets elevated, in essence, to second in command of the jail, which probably doesn't sound like a great deal. But I'd like you to consider, well, what if in that 14 years it was split down the middle? Now, I'm not saying it was, but what if it was? That would mean that Joseph would have known seven years of how to deal with much. And then Joseph would have had seven years of how to deal with little. Are you following me on this? Now, let's go. Now, Joseph, two years ago, has, has been in prison with two guys that had two dreams. Well, one dream apiece. And if you remember the dreams, one of the guys is going to get killed. One of the guys is going to be restored. The bread is broken. The cup is restored. And at that point, then, he says, not to the guy who's going to die. Why would you tell him? But to the other one, hey, when you get up there, when you tell Pharaoh, I'm innocent. Get me out of here. And, of course, he forgets. The question is, what if that man had told Pharaoh? Joseph would have left. I mean, if he would have been delivered out of Egypt, he would have left. He would have gone back to Israel. And he would never have been allowed to be the savior of all mankind, as we'll know him to be in this chapter. He would have lost the greatness of his calling. But interesting, in those two years where he has to deal with very difficult disappointment, maybe like yourself, where something didn't happen the way you wanted it to, certainly not in the time period you wanted it to, and there you are struggling. The God, listen, it isn't a setback, it's a setup. It's a setup for something so much better. And here I've done all of this and we haven't read a verse yet. Now with all of that, God, in order to fulfill his calling on Joseph's life the way he wants to, is going to have to put Joseph in a place where he feels like he's doing nothing for two years. But let me tell you something else he has to do in those two years. In those 14 years of being in Egypt, he's had to learn how to speak Egyptian. He's not going to be able to fare any other way. Now, 41 verse 1. It came to pass at the end of two full years, not a year and a half we're going to round up, but two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river, and suddenly there came out of the river seven cows looking fine and fat. And they fed in the meadow. By the way, for what it's worth, we usually we read this text as a family. Usually I text a day or two beforehand, and they usually act it out. And I have my oldest and her mother, and I ask, which one of you wants to be the fat cow? I know, that's a little rough, isn't it? But the, the problem is they're fine-looking, in fact. Then the other one is skinny and ugly. Boy, some of the girls are like, you tell it, look at that, right there. Fat is beautiful and skinny is ugly. All right, I'm not preaching that. I'm just telling you what's here in the text. So, if you're a cow, all right, seven cows looking fat and fine. And they fed in the meadow while all things are beautiful. Little Vivaldi music in the background, verse 3. Then behold, seven other cows came up out from the, after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. You think that reminds me of secondary school? Anyway, so, um, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up and went, oh, I bet he didn't want a burger. I thought, well, that was a strange dream. Now, please understand as Pharaoh was responsible for Upper and Lower Egypt, he was responsible then as well for the bread basin of Egypt and for the pastures, which are the two major industries outside of anything in the city. I mean, I wonder what it would be like, from which Pharaoh, by the way, who was the original, not evolutionist, but believed that all life came from water, from the Nile specifically. 
And he's standing at the Nile, looking at the river, and out of that river is going to come cows, for which, by the way, he was responsible to keep them fed. What would that be like? And you wake up. Now, what if, imagine if you're working at Krispy Kreme. Some of you don't go, don't nod off on me on that one. No fantasy at the moment. But just imagine, and all of a you're having this dream, and all of a sudden, seven beautiful jelly filled just start, you know, coming out. And you're thinking, all right, remember, you're responsible for it. And all of a sudden, seven nasty-looking, burnt, gross-looking things come popping out, and they eat the other ones. And you think, ugh. And you wake up and go, wow, i got to stop having pepperoni something or something before I go to sleep. Verse 5. He slept and had a second. He slept and jumped a second time. Suddenly, seven heads of grain come up, of the stalk plump and good. That's your bread base in the other part of Egypt. By the way, did you notice they didn't come up out of the river? And behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, spring up after them. Now understand, the Mediterranean is to your north. Wet weather normally comes from the west. To your east is desert. That's Saudi Arabia. So anything that blows from the east is usually warm, but dry and not good for your crops. And it says that the seven thin heads devour, they, they spring up, blighted by the east wind. And it says the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh woke indeed, it was a dream. Now for you, you could have these dreams and you'd think, well, that was really weird and that's about it. But for a guy that's trying to hold his universe together, these are very troubling dreams. And might I just say, God knows how to speak your language. And whether that's for some of you, a kebab flying in space, whether that's a, you know, whether that's a picnic that's full of unkosher things for Peter in Acts chapter 10. He knows how to speak fluent you. And for some, by the way, God knows how to do that with outside signs. Some of you are really driven by external circumstances. If that's your language, God knows how to speak it. Some it's a confirmation in your heart. And we're trying to get other people to get the way that God speaks to us, speaking to them. But in the end of it all, I'm confident he's got your number. And please, let me just say this before I go any farther. It's a side note, but a key one. Responsibility of communication usually is twofold. The person who's speaking is responsible for trying to speak to you in a language you can understand. That's his job. That's my job here. Your job's just to listen and try to encode it. But what if God was the one speaking to you, not me? Would he know how to speak to you? Would he punish you because you weren't bright enough to discover or decode his special secret messages? Do you live that kind of world? Like somewhere down the line, God's leaving some kind of clues, and if you can't get it, bam, he hits you in the head and says, Kim, you should have figured that out. Try harder. What kind of sick dad would do that to his kids? Honey, I have a plan for you for today. It's hidden somewhere in your room. You've got 10 minutes to find it. And if not, I'm going to beat you. What kind of sick dad would that be? Why do we treat God that way? It really is his job. It really is his job to speak. And by the way, even to help interpret it, because it's spiritually discerned. Our job is to be available in listening. Because one thing's for sure, we could pretend like we're listening when we have no interest in following at all. Having said that here, now Pharaoh awoke. Indeed, it was a dream. Verse 8, it says, It came to pass in the morning that the spirit was troubled, his spirit, 
And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt. A little card trick, pull a bunny out of a hat. It wasn't helping. And all of his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. At least they were wise enough to not say anything. But he called their bluff. Won't be the last time that will happen. We'll see it in Daniel as well. Verse 9, then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. By the way, for what it's worth, the word for troubled, we see in verse 8, it's the word pa'am. Could you say pa'am? Pa'am is the word that literally means to beat regularly. That's where Pharaoh's at at the moment. Have you ever had your spirit, the attitude of your heart beat regularly? Something happens and it's just, you feel like you're getting pounded inside. And you're like, whoa. And you tell it to someone else and it wasn't mean anything. I had this gym and there was like this ho-ho, this giant chocolate cake. And it was beating me in the head. And my daughter would be like, yes. I'm like, no, it was terrible. And, you know, and they don't get it. They don't get how your spirit's troubled. Because again, this is God speaking to you, not to them. But he's telling it to them. And you can imagine them going, cows, huh? Cows. Cows ate cows. Cannibalistic cows. Cannibalistic corn or wheat. That's really great. And you're freaked out over it. And you can see Pharaoh's like, oh, I'm freaked out. And they're like, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. And at that point, you would imagine Pharaoh's a little bit upset. So, by the way, so it says this. Then the butler speaks up and he says, I remember my chit. The chit, by the way, is the word that means crime or penalty. And he says, look at I remember my faults this day. Verse 10. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. Notice that was, by the way, Joseph's boss. Both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream. And one night, he and I, each of us dreamt according to the interpretation of his own dream. And there was this young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. Remember, that's again Potiphar. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. Each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so what happened, he restored me to my office, and he hanged him. It's a common view among the Egyptians, by the way, that if you could interpret the dream, you had the power to bring it to pass. And that's where this guy is at at the moment. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothing, and came before Pharaoh. You can't have a mangy, gross-looking guy come before the man who's rolling the universe. Tends to be rough. By the way, that's probably why we get that idea, don't we? And there's, by the way, we come before God dirty. It's God who makes us clean. It'll never be us. But get the idea, Joseph hasn't seen a lick of sun, a lick of sun, whatever, a ray of sun, in, in two years, at least two years. It could be as many as 14. We really don't know, but he's not seen sun for quite a while. He's one guy, though, that when you shave him, at least he won't have that, you know, that line that happens where hair used to be, but now there's none. So in other words, Joseph, and by the way, when they shave you, they shave you. It isn't like you just get a little trim. There's no hair left on the boy because the Egyptians were really big on cleanliness. So he looked a little bit, dare I say, like Bruno. So, I mean, the idea of it was, man, that except for, he's looking, you probably grew this out just because you knew I was going to say that. Uh, see? But I mean, I mean it's, it's all head, it's all face, it's all chin, it's your hair on your chest, it's hair anywhere. And he comes out now just all shiny and white as anyone's ever seen white. And he's a Hebrew boy. But at this point, he doesn't. And he's going to put on a little bit of mascara, kind of because he's going to try to make you look good. He's going to put you in some nicer clothes, so you're going to be all duded up. We don't read that you took a bath, but I'd like to think they bathed Joseph. At least or he's looking all nice, but stinky. And it says, and stinketh, right? In verse 14, and he came to Pharaoh. 
So here he is now. Now, now I want you to kind of put this into perspective of Joseph for a second, because this is what makes it so fun to me. It's been two stinking years. Not a word, not a card. He never calls. He never writes. No texts that say, hey, things are good up at the top. Love the butler. Nothing, right? Two years ago, you said, remember me. At this point, you are sure he has not remembered you. Would you think you get up this day, it's a day like every other day. What does that mean? You shovel poop because you're in a dungeon and people poop. And you have to again, you know, get food and you have to take whatever measly food, which is usually what is left over from other feasts that now hopefully isn't rotting. And you're feeding that now to the prisoners. So you're taking that and you're delving through the garbage, the rubbish, basically, to figure out what you're going to give each guy. Right. And Joseph, by the way, we read that. Remember when he looked at that guy initially, the guy that was the baker and the butler, he's like, why are you guys so sad? I mean, he's in prison and he's asking a guy, why do you look sad? Like, that's strange. Like everybody else is happy to be in prison. And you guys are sad. Why aren't you joining in the chorus line? And they're like, I had a bad dream. Oh, okay. I mean, think about this. He's like, well, okay, well, here, let me tell you why they're so happy. Have some rotten food. I'm so happy to have rotten food. You know, I'm just happy to not see sunlight for days. Where's my hand? You know, I mean, think about where that is. And in all of that, now, this is what Joseph, and do you really think he got up that morning and goes, you know what will probably happen today? I'll get a good shave. I'm going to get a really some nice clothes. I'll get some, like, like eye makeup on and I could go and stand before Pharaoh. That's going to really be what I mean, who would think that? If anybody actually said they had a dream and they told it to Joseph and said, Joe, I had this dream. Tomorrow you're going to get up and you're going to be second in command. You'd go, shut up. That's not possible. Do you realize how quickly things can change? For two years, Joseph has been experiencing what seems to be at best purgatory. I mean, there's no biblical support for it, but this, not like after you die, while you, I mean, you feel like it's while you're living. It's like, I feel like I'm going nowhere. I'm doing nothing. Nothing is happening. And you're thinking, I'm going to die this way. And they go, oh, by the way, Joseph, Pharaoh would like to see you. And now which one of you thinks, oh, yippee skippy. He's really going to be happy to see me. He's killed almost every other guy. We don't even read Joseph had a dream and thought, well, tomorrow things are going to be good for you. All we know is it's sort of like, you know, your father would like to see you, Jeffrey. I mean, which one of you thinks, oh, my dad probably wants to give me something good. Usually the tone alone is going to be a little concerning, right? And I mean, and here he is. I mean, he's stinky. He's just, he may never have shaved. The Jews didn't shave. And then he got taken to maybe in Potiphar's house he did, but he's been in prison and however long he's been there, I guarantee you hygiene was not the number one concern. If you died in prison, oops, walk or work around it. And here's Joseph working in the middle of this. And all of a sudden he woke up and boom, he's going to be second command. David woke up, he followed sheep and all of a sudden, boom, he was king. Do you have any idea how unlimited today could be for you? Do you have any idea? Or are you still thinking, well, probably today is going to be another day like every other. I'm going to just, hallelujah, I'll stand and lift up my hands for the joy of the Lord is my strength and... Joy in my soul. And like, that's it. I'm going to go to sleep tonight. And oh, if I die before I wake, awesome. (laughs) And you really think that's where it's going? You really think that's what you've got? No wonder why nobody wants to be what we have. Because they don't see anything different. And you might as well go to Starbucks. At least you feel better for about 20 minutes. (laughs) 
You're like, wow, I feel great. I feel great. Oh, I need a nap. Or another shot of espresso. And, and we're going, wow, Jesus has just changed my life. He just gives me joy. and <sighs> Life abundant. Life abundant. Did I mention life abundant? Yeah. <sighs> What's wrong, man? Bills and things are troublesome. And bun- what does that mean, abundant life? Above and beyond what you can contain? Funny, at that moment, I'd say I'd be looking in the cup, going like this, seeing if anything comes out, right? And we're looking, and, and I realized Joseph woke up, and, and we don't know. We don't know whether Joseph went maybe today, and he's been doing that every day, and people go, you're like Pollyannic or what? All we know is that all of a sudden he woke up, and someone said, hey, things are going to be different today, a little bit different. And you're like, well, what different? Like everything. Like what? You're going to put a window in? And for some of us, think about it, for some of us, that would be enough. Wouldn't it be? I mean, think about it. It's like you've been smelling poop and dead people for at least two years. And someone goes, hey, can you pray to God? What, what do you pray in a moment like that? Do you just pray after two, after two years? After two years, do you pray, God, just like a little window or something? Something? Could you remove my ability to smell? <laughs> or, you know, when, when do you get to the point where you think that the greatest prayer of faith at that point is, kill me now? Because I know you have the ability to take my life. This would be a good moment. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, 25 years, Abram is going to have to wait. Do you really think in any of those years, he really thought, oh, I'm probably in prep for being a dad. This is the father course. Moses is going to get 40 in the back 40. Because, see, God's going to have to teach Moses how to be a shepherd. Because he's going to lead sheep. David's going to have to learn to be a sheep. Because he was a shepherd. I don't know what it is in this season God is teaching you. But I know it's something. And when class is done, which by the way, you can't even rush. You can't say, can I have more of this? Because it may be a trial. And then you'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. I said more of this. And God said, that's part of the class. And you're like, no, it's not. And God's like, oh, I forgot. You're the teacher. And all of a sudden you're waiting. And I mean, could you imagine? The thing is, some of you, this is your life. Can I just dare say? Ashley, Ashley went through a handful of... Uh, of auditions as most people do. And she's like, no, no, come on. Can I just get something other than a no? And then it's like, how about dancing for the Olympics? I mean, how different is that from a no? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you realize where you are at this moment? You may be at the moment where you're just about to pivot into something amazing. The truth is, is if, it's, if you're not in practice, you're in prep, like it or not. So he wakes up, and it gets more fun than that. You think that that's crazy? Walk with me a little bit more. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, came out of the dungeon. This is verse 14. Changed his clothing, came to Pharaoh. He was shaved. Verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. Now, there's no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand the dream to interpret it. Stop. If Joseph has come before Pharaoh, where is Pharaoh at this moment? He's on his throne. If Pharaoh's on his throne, who's beside him? Potiphar on one side, and who's on the other side? 
the priest, the archbishop, the priest who resides in a city called On. That should be easy to remember, because when you look at that priest, you say, it's On. And that means that's where he lives. So, okay, did you get that? So, the priest of On is on one side. We're going to read what his name is in a moment. And Potiphar, his old boss who fired him, should have killed him, but put him in the prison in his house, instead did because his wife was a cougar. So with that in mind, it tells us here, he came to shave his clothes. So he's standing before these guys and the, the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I heard you can interpret dreams. Joseph in verse 16 says, he said to Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, by the way, let me just say clear, quickly on this. Humility is not speaking low of yourself or putting yourself down. It's just not putting yourself first. And that's what Joseph did. He didn't go, oh, no, no, no. I'm sure there's a lot of people who could probably probably do this. And I'm really just no one, Pharaoh. I'm just no one. But I, I'll give it a try. God will help me. He just didn't put himself in the line at all. He just pulled himself out of the queue and said, hey, listen, God's the one who's going to do this. And if he uses me, that's cool. Verse 17. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Again, remember, that's where life's supposed to come. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed on the meadow. And then it says, excuse me, then behold, seven other cows came up and after them, poor, very ugly and gaunt. Such ugliness as I have never seen in the land of Egypt. And he says, here we have pretty things. And those were not pretty things. They must have been imports. Verse 20, And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them. I mean, they ate a whole cow and you couldn't tell the difference. For they were just as ugly as in the beginning. Which, ladies, again, men as well, means that somehow skinny was ugly. So I awoke. Also, I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up off one stalk, full and good. Then, behold, seven heads withering, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I was told this. To the, so I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain this to me. Joseph, by the way, we read, doesn't seem like he needs to take a break. Needs to go out and fast for a few days. Seems like Joseph's had a couple of years to get ready for this. Um, you know, if Joseph had spent the whole night complaining and whining, he would not have been ready for this moment. Did you get that? And dare I just say to you that if the Lord wants to hit that switch and toss you into a brand new world, even at this very moment, it would be good if you were ready. Have you ever had those moments where something comes before you when you know a very profound ministry experience is happening in front of you and you are like, man, I wish I was prepared for that. And you know you're going to walk out of there going, ah, stop, what was I? Well, if Joseph were complaining and whining all night, he would not have been ready for this moment. And I would wonder when you, they, they call you out and there you are and you're being pulled out and you're going to go before Pharaoh and I'm going to go before Pharaoh and they're like, well, we're going to need to change your clothes. And, and is there a point where you start to think, would you really kill a guy in these clothes? Would you really kill a guy you shaved? You know I mean? Would you really? And, and, and at this point now, he kind of stands before Pharaoh and there's his boss and you think, oh, oh this is not good. It's like, oh, I had this dream. Oh, and I heard you could, no, 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 God can do it. Well, what's your dream? And he says, and Joseph, bam, he comes right back with it because he's ready. Joseph, verse 25, says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Did you notice that, by the way? He is going to keep his focus on God. The seven good cows are seven good years. The seven good heads are seven good years. The dreams are one. The seven thin and ugly cows, which came up out of the, are seven years. The seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. 
Now these things which I have spoken, uh, these things which I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now God is setting this whole thing up, even in the seven worst years that you will ever see here, God is about to glorify himself. And you'd say, well, where is God in a drought? Where is God in this famine? God is using other things right now to save lives. And that's what he does here. Now he goes, well, look at Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and the plenty will all be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not even be known in the land, because the famine following it will be very severe. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because this thing is established by God, and God will surely bring it to pass. And I start to think, well, what, 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 I wonder what Joseph was thinking. See, because Joseph had two dreams as a boy. Do you remember that? And everybody thought, wow, two dreams because God established it. Because in Deuteronomy, it says, by the way, by the mouth of two witnesses, a matter is established. And I wonder if Joseph went, hmm, clearly in this, God established that. But wait a minute, there were other two dreams. When I was in the dungeon, there were two guys that had dreams. Well, what did that establish? That one's going to die and one's going to live? Well, wait a minute. Actually, what they established is that God was giving me the ability at that moment to interpret these dreams. Who would have thought two years from now, God's going to use that to totally change my life? I would have thought that moment was the moment. That was the key moment. Look, I met that person. It was like, when we met, we intersected. That's the moment. Two years, I've had enough time to forget that guy ever lived. Or think about him every day and wish he were dead. And obviously, that doesn't seem to be where he is at. And I realize God's been doing that. And I wonder, when you were a kid, did you have to be told everything once? And that was it? I wonder why it takes more than one for God to establish something. And we have one girl that if we can stop her and we just look her straight in the face, we can steal everything and tell her she'll probably do it. The other one, it'll be a few. And I realize God does that with Peter. God does it with us. You know, the amazing thing is he doesn't yell. It isn't like the second time God makes it any nastier than the first because there's this patience issue with God. And when God needs to yell, you really don't want to be in that situation. No, therefore, and by the way, he goes from the gift of interpretation, by the way, to the gift of wisdom. Wisdom, by the way, as we'll see in the New Testament, is taking knowledge and properly applying it. That's all it is. What do you, how do you put legs on that information? May God grant us all wisdom, even with what we're reading. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. Now, by the way, Egypt usually collected a tithe. I don't know if you know that. They collected a tenth from all of their farmers. Now they're going to collect 20% instead. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in their cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land in the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. The advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of Pharaoh's servants, which, by the way, which means the advice was also good in the eyes of Potiphar, because that was one of his servants. Potiphar, I'm sorry, then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God, Elohim Charuch? I should say, Ruach Elohim. Pharaoh said to, this, to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you this, by the way, did you notice that Pharaoh got that? Pharaoh seemed to get that somehow God was the one responsible for this. And there's no one as discerning and wise as you then. You shall be over my house 
over all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Which means he's going to be everybody else's boss. And I wonder what that conversation looked like that night. Man comes down. Hi, honey. How was your day? Well, it was good. Potiphar's wife. Um, honey, but I got to tell you, remember that Hebrew boy back when? Yeah. <laughs> that was nice eyebrows. <laughs> you remember him? How? Yeah. Um, remember how we put him in prison? Well, um, you may see him going, yeah, rotten guy. He, isn't he dead yet? Well, tomorrow I report to my new boss. Well, maybe he could kill him. Well, actually, he's, he's my new boss. Now, who would have thought that? Which one of you would have said, surely that Hebrew boy that we threw in prison, he's going to be the boss? He's not even Egyptian. And the only person that he has to sit underneath is going to be Pharaoh himself? Now, that's crazy, but true. And that's where this thing goes. I mean, Potiphar has to now sit underneath him. But I wonder if Potiphar would be okay with it. Because Potiphar even himself oversaw the jail from which Joseph was going to oversee for however many years prior to this point, right? And so with this in mind, he says, so I set you over the land of Egypt. And so it says then, verse 41, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt, all of it. Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Do you remember that signet ring you saw? Which means then that, that Joseph is responsible with all of the treasures of the kingdom. All of them have been handed to him. And then it says, And he clothed them in garments of fine linen. To this day you were aware of the fact that Egyptian linen is its own category. And he put a gold chain around his neck. Now again, that's not making him look like Mr. T. He's not getting bling bling. Do you remember what that metal chain looked like? That gold chain? That was that big band. He just got the authority of a pharaoh underneath a pharaoh. Do you think he gave that to anyone? Ever? The only people we have in history on wall reliefs are all of those and one man on a wall relief that they call an hippotep, which, by the way, many believe is actually Joseph. Strangely enough, once in the history of Egypt, they have a person second in command wearing that gold band, that gold coin. And and actually, strangely enough, we have it recorded in Scripture. But it gets even crazier. Wouldn't that be enough for you at that moment, for your brain to ooze out of your ears and go, yeah, this is a strange day. He had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried up before him, bow the knee. And at that point, I'd have to start referring to the dreams. I go, wow, I don't remember any Egyptian stocks bowing to me. But that's exactly what's happening. So he set him over the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh also said to Joseph, as if that weren't enough, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot. No man, that includes Potiphar, in the land of all Egypt, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephath Paneah. Would you say Zephath Paneah? Now there's argument over what this means. Traditionally, it means one of three things. To the Egyptian, it means savior of the age. To the Hebrew, it means revealer or the treasure of glorious rest. And he gave him as wife Asenat. Would you say Asenat? 
which, by the way, many believe was a, was a priestess. She was the daughter of the priest, we read here. The daughter of, and get this guy's name, Potiphera. Now, who wants to be named Potiphera? But look at who he is. The priest of On. Wait a minute. Don't miss this. Pharaoh sitting on his throne. To his right is who? Potiphar. And to his left is Potiphera. Oh, that guy just must be easy to call those guys to dinner. Potty. They just both come running, right? All right so Potiphar, Potiphera are both there surrounding him at that moment. And he looks and he says, hey, this guy's your boss. Hey, give him your daughter. That's what he does here. How strange is that? Now, did you really think this night, you know what, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be second in command, they're going to give me a stretch hummer with those flags in the front, and when I honk the horn, everyone's got to bow. And not only that, I'm going to get a good shave. Let's face it, if you dreamt you were going to get a good shave tomorrow, that would be more than you probably prayed for. And I'm going to smell like poop. I'm not going to smell like poop anymore. I tell you what, I'm going to be clothed in Egyptian linen. And all the, you mean, all the other you know, prisoners would look and go, whatever. Right? As if. Oh, not only that, but tomorrow I'm going to get married. To who? Oh, like the second most powerful or third most powerful guy at this moment, his daughter. Now, do you know why you marry off a daughter to someone? Because, it, because you fear that man enough that you want to make sure that he's going to be at peace with you. That's why many kings married other guys, other kings' daughters, because you're not going to attack your daughter. That's why Ahab more than likely actually married Jezebel. She was a Sidonian princess. Now listen, friends, as we wrap this around to get near to closing this, believe it or not. Joseph has woke up this morning. Woke up this morning, he was just a prisoner. That's all he was. But that day he was summoned before the one who was in charge of everything. And as he was summoned before the one in charge of everything, by the time he is done, he has given every bit of the treasure of the kingdom. He has been washed. He has been cleaned. He has been clothed. And he's been more than restored. He has been elevated. Did Joseph earn that? God put that whole thing together. He did. And even after two years, at least two years of really rough riding to get there, it was not a simple road to get there. And what's going to happen is this guy is going to be lifted up. Hear me, hear me, hear me. He's going to be lifted up and he's going to be used to save all of the Gentile world as they know it. And then he will be revealed to his Jewish brothers And as he's revealed to his Jewish brothers, he'll be restored and become the savior of them as well. And you now have the entire future waiting ahead of you. This season we are in, Jesus has been sent to the pit. Only that pit was the grave on my behalf and yours. He died in that pit. And when he did, he was raised up. And when he was raised up, all of the treasures of the kingdom of his. And we read, by the way, that he sets before us an open door. What open door would he set before us? He is the one that has the keys of David, which Isaiah, by the way, makes clear are the very treasures of God's kingdom. And if you think the best God is to offer you is money, you are ripping God off. He has love and joy and peace to give you that makes money worth nothing in your sight. Because you don't need it the way you did before. 
And in all of that, he stands there out of God's grace and he looks at you and now he summons you to him. Whether you know it or not, the rough road you've been on has led you into this room on this day. And it may have been a really rough road, but God has never been ignorant of your suffering. But at this moment, he's calling, he's going, look at, I want to do something profound in your life. Will you let me? Will you let me? Could you imagine how dumb Joseph would have looked when he got shaved and cleaned up and all, and he stood before Potiphar and said, no, thanks. I'd rather go down to the poop hole I came from. And we'd go, we'd be flipping through pages going, really? That's how this ends? That's it? Oh, come on. What an idiot. As would be us at a moment like this if we'd say no to our king who summoned us to his presence. And say, look it. I'd rather give you a life abundant. Not this one where you're kind of weathering through it. Do you really think this is the best you can have? And in all of that, do you really think at this point, your choice would be wise to say, no, I'll go back to the life I had. It's still pretty cool in the dungeon. It stinks down there. Literally, it stinks down there. Do you really want to be there? Do any of you remember how horrible it was there? Because once you get pulled up for a while, you tend to forget how nasty it was. Don't ever forget that it was a hole. It was a poop hole. And God pulled you out without you earning it. And after that, he betrothed you. Now, in this situation now, he becomes, in essence, the second most powerful person. This boy that's now 30. And with that, then, we'll close with these few verses here and we'll kind of go to prayer. Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. Now listen. Hear me, friends. Joseph's public ministry, public ministry, public ministry to save begins at what age? 30. How many ages do we have for Jesus located in Scripture? Two of them. One at 12. Why 12? I'll tell you in a second. And the other, of course, at 30. Do you think that's a coincidence? You've probably heard it said coincidence is a kosher word. Listen. In Genesis 49, it says that the scepter will not depart from Israel or from Judah until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes, until rest comes. Then, and the Jews knew that that scepter was their ability to rule themselves. And even under the dominion of all of these other kingdoms, they still allowed them to function as Jews. Even the Babylonians still allowed them to function among their Jewish codes. And that happened until 7 A.D., Because in 7 AD, the leader of Judah, which wasn't, by the way, Pontius Pilate, he won't come until the 20th, is actually a man named Coponius. And Coponius, in his anger to the Jews, removed the right for capital punishment. Doesn't allow them to kill their own anymore. And the Jews actually said, the scepter has departed from Judah. We've no longer had it. But follow me on this for a second. Herod the Great died in 2 B.C., Okay, now that's weird. Because at that point, somewhere before he dies, he's going to want to kill every child two years old or younger, right? So Jesus couldn't have been born in like 0 AD BC because Herod the Great was already dead. So what if Jesus was born in 4 BC, which is, by the way, what most people believe? 
which I wouldn't argue. Now do the math. Jesus has a specific day in which he has to come. And that specific day that he has to come is going to be then when he's 12 or 13. Why is that important for a Jewish boy? What happens at 12 or 13? Bar mitzvah. What is bar mitzvah? When you present your son as a man. In other words, from this point on, he is old enough to make decisions that he actually should pay for. That was the idea. So the parents are like, I don't want to have to pay his bills. He breaks the glass. He can work it off. That was the idea. He reads from Scripture publicly in Hebrew for the first time, and they throw candy at him. Every kid loves it. Now, with that in mind, let's do the math. So that would mean, when would that be? That would be 6 or 7 A.D. At 6 or 7 A.D., Jesus is presented in the temple. Presented. Presented. My son has come. He reads the Scripture publicly. And then they remove the right from capital punishment because in Genesis 49, it says, the scepter will not depart until he comes. Do you see how that worked? He came, the scepter departed, just like God had promised. Two ages and both of them fundamental for the book of Genesis, as weird as that is. Now listen, as we get back to our text and pray, where are you at today? Let me ask you first of all, where are you at in regards to life? Are you in a holding pattern? Do you feel like your plane's gone around so many times at this point? You have memorized the landing flight plan, but in it you've never actually touched down on anything? Which, by the way, can be university if you're not careful, but that's another story. You know, And you just feel like, I just would like something to happen. Where is this? Or worse yet, it just seems like it's rough riding, and you're like, when is this going to end? And we think, wow, well, it took so long for this to happen. It's probably going to take forever for it to get out. Do you really think your God's that weak? If you trust in the living God, if it's not today, and it could be, could it be tomorrow? It could happen like that. But it starts with this. When he calls you to him, what are you going to do? Are you going to say yes to his offer? I'd like to change you. I'd like to save you. I'd like to pull you out of your pit. I'd like to transform you and make you beautiful. Or you'd say, no, 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 my life's good enough as it is. It's, I st- you tell everyone else you hate it, but when you go before God, you're like, no, 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 I still want to be the master of it. And God's like, well, you've done a great job with that. Are you willing today to let go enough to let the Lord take your life and make it the beautiful thing he wants to? Are you still trying to give God just a little bit and see what he does with it before you give him some more? Well, if you've accepted the gift of Christ, and we've already laid that out before us as we spend our time in praise, I want to give you that opportunity one more time to just say yes to his offer. Look, and I'm not asking for you to live a perfect life. If that were the case, we'd all be in trouble. I'm asking you to accept the perfect gift of the perfect one who perfectly lived and perfectly died to perfectly offer you his perfect gift to perfectly save you. The part of the perfections in him. Every other religion in the world you perform, at the end of it all, maybe God says it's okay. In other words, you're responsible for everything. He's responsible for a final say. But in this particular thing in Scripture, what we read is God did all the performing. He died on the cross, rose again, and now he gives you the final say to say, will you, will you say yes to my gift? He did all the work. He chased after you. That's how much he loves you. Will you say yes to that today? Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you so much for Joseph and the amazing life he's led for out of us. Lord, I know that there are some people in Scripture we just don't have a recorded sin. That we know what that means. That doesn't mean they never sin, but 
The only one we record in, that we read in Scripture, Lord, as you know, that, that never sinned is your son, tempted in every way, yet without sin. But we don't have Joseph recording one. Or one recorded of him. But we do have that he has a lot of opportunities to. We don't read him whining or complaining in the place that he's at, but rather somewhere in it all, he gets pulled out and so quickly everything changes within a snap of a finger, within a bad dream, within a hard night for a Pharaoh who's trying to hold his whole universe together. And yet in all of this, he's going to have to admit that you, God, you are the God who holds it together. Lord, I pray, first of all, for every believer in here, including me, that we would be faithful. Show us the difference between waiting for and waiting on you, Lord. Where if we wait for, we've made up our plans and we're just waiting for when you're going to follow through with them. Which we may find ourselves tremendously disappointed until we realize that your plans are always better. But on the other side of that, we want to wait on you, as Isaiah has taught us, where we would renew our strength and mount up on wings like eagles, run and not get tired and walk and not faint. But to wait on you means we're just going to throw ourselves on top of you. And Lord, we're not going to move until you do. And I, and I confess to you, that's not easy. That's not easy at all. And to be honest, it takes a great discipline to not move when you haven't told me to. But Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to trust that even if things seem still, you're still busy. And even if things aren't changing the way that I would hope they would as quickly as they would, whatever, Lord, that you're still in control. And that in one second, everything could radically change. So give me the patience, but more so give me the faith to be patient. Because you give, through even each trial, character and in character, hope. And hope that doesn't disappoint because of the spirit you've poured into our hearts. So Lord, may we be people that truly demonstrate true joy. Not just temporary happiness. And be expectant, Lord, even in your return. Because certainly at that moment, everything is going to change. And for us, all the better. But right now, at the sound of this voice, have you accepted this gift? Have you said yes to Jesus? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're still trying to figure it all out. Maybe you're trying to weigh the costs. I will say it's meritous that you would actually consider that there are costs involved because your life is going to change. But the question is, in all those costs, can you afford to wait? Is there really anything you think that this world or your life could possibly have to offer that would be worth holding on to to keep you from the love of a living God who proved his love perfectly for you on the cross? And right now, you kind of know the routine, perhaps, that if you want to accept this gift, and even if you don't claim to know everything, I don't think any of us could claim to know anything. That's not our job. But you know this much. That if God wants you and he really offers you this, that we'd be fools to say no. And right now, if that's you, I just want to pray this prayer. And at the end of it all, if you agree, I just ask you to say amen. Lord, I need you. Thank you for wanting me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. Thank you that he wants me. Thank you that he paid for all my sins, all my wrong, all my guilt. Thank you that it was paid for in full.
Thank you that he rose from the grave on the third day. Thank you for the new life you now offer me with Jesus as my Savior and Lord. So I say yes to the gift of Jesus, confessing him as so. And I say, have me. Make me your own. I may not understand everything, but I understand this much, that if you're willing to offer me this, I'd be a fool to say no, so I say yes. Make the rest clear now, if you would, please, in your time and in your way. But I give my life to you and say, make of it what you desire, because I know whatever you make of it will be best. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for the privilege of being your pastor and the honor of going through the word with you.